Hope everyone had a good Easter last uh, last Sunday. Uh, if you joined us for worship, um, I know a lot of you fed back that you really liked how we were able to go through so many different scenes over the four weeks and basically experience the drama that Jesus experienced. Thanks, Brent. And uh, now we're living in the aftermath of that. And uh, the, the good news is that he is risen, that his power is at work, and that as he goes to work in each of our lives through his spirit, we change and we become made new. The difficult thing is how that change process oftentimes plays out. And if you've looked thematically at the songs that uh, Brian's um, led us through, you know that they involve some degree of pain, some element of suffering. And generally out of that comes something good because God is always in the business of taking the lives of people that trust him and all the stuff that makes us makes it challenging to live and working it together for good. And uh, only God can engineer something like that. Well, I believe one of the things that happens to us as we're going through those dark times is we sometimes find ourselves up late at night Brains just spinning and spinning in overdrive, trying to sort out how we're going to deal with things that um, we don't have peace about. And I think that God probably uses the lack of sleep or insomnia as a way to speak to us about things that may be going on in our lives. I just wanted to add uh, one of the songs that we sang Um, I will trust in you. Did did anybody recognize that song? Anybody ever listen to Lauren Daigle? Okay. Maybe if you know a little bit about her story, she, I don't know a whole lot, but I do know that uh, during the time that she was in high school, she had an illness that kept her socially disconnected from from most situations and people, including school. And uh, she liked to listen to Amy Winehouse, I think, and also some Adele. And she's down in the Cajun South, and during that time, she's just singing all the time to the Lord and taking that cauldron of perplexing and, and really uh, a, a lot of uncertainty uh, in her experience as a, as a young person who should be in school and living a normal life. And she's just channeling all of that into an expression uh, that made this album that uh, she came out with a while back, and a lot of us have been listening to it. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, every, every one of the songs is so rich in meaning. And I believe, had she not gone through that time of great dis- distress like she did, we wouldn't have uh, the wonderful expression that um, that song and, and so many others are. And I, I think that's par for the course for anyone who tries to do anything for the Lord. There will be seasons where... We not only have pain and discomfort and uncertainty, there will be seasons of restlessness. There will be seasons where uh, we, just, we just can't really find that peace or get that rest. And maybe that's going on in your life right now. And perhaps if it is, uh, this series that we're going to be doing called Insomniac is, is, is maybe going to address some things that God is working on in your life. Um, I, I've had my own dark uh, valleys that I've, I've gone through, and I can recall in going through them, oftentimes it led to being up in the middle of the night, and my, my brain is like a hard drive that just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, and I can't spin it down. And I, I think the Lord took me through that experience so that I could perhaps, in my role, help others to deal with the things that he was dealing with me in my life uh, at the time. Uh, so... 
perhaps as we go through this series, God's going to be dealing with you. He's going to be speaking to you about things. And uh, these are things that, um, uh, in general, I've tried to uh, look at and we've tried to look at that might be meaningful to your world. The stuff that keeps me up at night, um, a couple of them are listed in the graphic that you see on the screen. Uh, One of them has to do with the future, uncertainty about the future. Another one is family. I have three kids uh, and and my wife. um, They mean the world to me and their well-being is constantly in the back of my mind. Uh, One of them is regret. And that is, as I've looked in the rearview mirror, I know I've, I've said things and done things that have maybe alienated or offended people and offended God, and I have to live with that. And I suspect I'm not alone in that role. And if, uh, if you share some of those things with myself, I know that God can, can use this time. So I'd like to bow and just uh, take this series before him and what it means and ask him to speak to us. Father, we know that as uh, you are the designer of rest, it was a keystone of the seventh day that you created. You have also called us through uh, a, a period of activity that involves actually a lot of frustration. And as we anticipate your peace and your rest in, in the fullest, most meaningful sense, we also feel in our lives uncertainty about things that worry us. I pray, Father, that however it is that you want to speak to each person here, that you'll do so, and however you want to speak through me, uh, that I would have your words and be in tune with them. Uh, That the things I say would reflect that, and the things I say that don't, just help us to quickly forget. And we just pray for your blessing on, on uh, on, on, on this matter as we think about the power of the resurrection, and we think about the powerlessness that we have when it comes to those things that preoccupy us and keep us up at night. And we ask these things through your sanctifying spirit and in the name of your son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, if you have your message notes with you, uh, we can take a quick look at them. And, um, and you'll see the graphic and you'll see on the front a passage of scripture from the book of Romans chapter 12. And in verses 9 and 10, um, we, we read a, a, a verse of scripture that I think will cover perhaps very sufficiently uh, Uh, why, if we're staying up at night and constantly thinking about things like our family, what it is that we need to change or how it is that we can move forward and and, and do our role uh, in in, in making those areas healthy. Um, Because I I have a feeling that sometimes we lose sleep over things that aren't quite resolved or aren't healthy. When I graduated from college, I know there's some college graduates in here um, who, who are newly minted. There are others who are getting close for a decade, I had dreams that would wake me up at night with a cold sweat saying, you've got a paper due. You've got a project due. And I just hated those dreams, and they were reoccurring. And it was like there must have been something during my college era that I, I, I didn't turn in, and it remains unresolved, but by the grace of God, I got a passing grade anyway, and I got through it. Um, that's kept me up at night. But that's pretty minor league compared to the stuff that life doles your way as it gets more complicated and other people become part of it. Um, If you are the age of 19 or above, statistically, you are a prime candidate for insomnia or even having seasons where insomnia is going to occur. It's just a, a, a thing that no one is exempt from. And some of the, I have a couple of infographics. I'm not going to show them. I'm just going to tell you what they mean. 
and, and one of them is, um, no, you know what, I will show them. Uh, just go ahead and, 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 and put the first one up. A um, hundred years ago, people slept 20% more than they do now. Um, surprise? Probably not because you have a phone probably by your bedside that dings and makes noises and vibrates and does all that stuff. Uh, and it's keeping you awake at night. Um, but for various reasons that have to do with the type of life that we live in, in this age, uh, we don't get a lot of sleep. As a sidebar note, uh, <clears throat> New York Times had an article this week that said uh, before the industrial era where there was a lot of light, where we had lighting and, and those things that changed our, our rhythm, did you know that people went to bed shortly after dusk? They slept for a few hours, then they'd wake up, and they'd be awake for about three hours, and then they'd go back to sleep and, 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 and continue their sleep trek uh, on, on into the morning. There was like that period of time for th- two or three hours where they were up, and they actually said that uh, this was pretty common in, in cultures all over the planet, and that when people were up, they did all kinds of things. They wrote letters, um, they did some work, uh, they drank beer, um, they... With their husband and wife, they did that thing, and just on and on, you know. So, uh, it's a, and they said, actually, people were healthier doing that. Um, I do know this. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I've got to write something, I am more focused and I am more productive than I am at any other point. Uh, so, there's something to that. But we don't live in that time. We live in a strange time, historically, where it's eight hours. And how many of you got eight hours of sleep last night? Good for you guys. I'm jealous. I just never can't seem to get eight hours of sleep. But I'm a night owl, and everything requires that I get up early. So I guess there's trade-offs. So you may be dealing with sleeplessness because it's self-inflicted, like uh, in my case. It may be because God is allowing things to occur in your life and in your heart and your mind so that he can get your attention. And you may be saying, I have a problem, Lord. I cannot sleep. What can you do to help me out? And maybe God's going to say, well, I'm not going to wave pixie dust over you and, and cause you to, 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 to just drift off. I'm going to rather have you work through some, some things that I couldn't otherwise get you to work through so that when you do, maybe you'll get the rest that you need. And I think sometimes he says, the reason why you're worried about your family is because there are some things about your family that you need to sort out. And maybe you're there, maybe you're not. Maybe this sermon will be completely irrelevant, but I I hope that it has a lot of meaning to you and that as Paul wrote these words from Romans uh, chapter 12, you'll begin to see what they mean. Let's just quickly look at those. And as we do, um, I'd like for us to read them together and uh, then, then we'll comment on how that works. So let's read it. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold lightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection, and take delight in honoring each other. I thought whenever I first saw that, that that would be something I'd like to put on a chalkboard in our house. You know how a lot of the retro chalkboard look? Uh, But the problem is none of us like chalk in our house or getting it on our hands. So somehow I'd like to have that just plastered on there because I have to be prompted periodically to do that, to really love the people that are in my home and the people that are in my larger church family, to hate what is wrong and just to follow each of those directives that are there. Here's the thing. If you look on the bottom of your front cover on your message notes, 
uh, our dilemma uh, goes something like this. Um, we, um, we're part of a family, uh, many of us, most of us, perhaps all of us. But being part of a family, uh, as we know, is maybe hands down the most meaningful thing that we could possibly be a part of. It's just wonderful. It's just by God's design. He made us socially to interconnect. However, our role and our relationship to our family can be very stressful. Um, and it can be stressful because the people around us mean so much. And a lot of times, we're not aligned on what we think is important. And that makes it worse. But some things you will never fully resolve or align, but other things are within your control. And Paul writes about it, and he says, by all means, bring that to uh, the situation. So flip your notes over, and as you do, um, let's just take this apart a little bit. Um, and ask the question, what would our lives be like if we had a chalkboard in our house in a prominent area, and we wrote that, uh, those two verses down as a creed that says, this is what I need to constantly keep in mind. I have to attend to my family in this way. But how would we even do it? Uh, so let's take it apart and let's look at a few things and let's begin to um, see if it'll help us to not be so sleepless when it comes to thinking about our family late at night. So the first thing I want you to do is just ponder what the last thing that is said in that verse, and that is to uh, honor, uh, honor those um, uh, around us. And don't just pretend to really, really love them. Uh, and you may be asking, well, what's the difference between pretending to love somebody and really loving them? Well, that's where we're going to see where you measure on a scale of 1 to 10 on each of these points. And then you'll know if you're acting it out or if you're genuinely doing what needs to be done. And the first thing is honor them. And if you honor someone, you are recognizing them, uh, ascribing to them high value. Now we think about honoring people in, in ceremonies and in, uh, in the moment of their accomplishment. But this is a day in, day out thing. And I just want to focus on that high value. High value means that you are investing your life in that person or thing or Whatever it is that is so central to your life that it becomes uh, the, 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 the way that you uh, use all of your energy. And if you look at your family, how much energy do they truly get? Is it, is it, um, is it, is it a sufficient amount that you are feeling pretty good about it? And you're not losing any sleep over it? Or is it something where you're like, yeah, I know that... Truth be told, my family's just getting my leftovers. And when I say family, of course, I'm, I'm primarily speaking to parents uh, or single parents. Uh, if you're aware of just how much your children, you know, mean to you, and, and, and I know you are, but as much as you think about their meaning, you're perplexed about how you can value their lives. And if you're like me, you come to work, you pour energy into your work, into the people around you, into the people that are uh, associated with it, and you go home and you're depleted. And you're giving those people in your world that need it the most, that you care about the most, that you value the most, the leftovers. And 
it's easy to, at this point, start feeling guilty about not being really the best you can be in every situation. But I would say that you need to be obviously committed to your work, but you need to be even more committed to your family. Uh, and I, how, how do I know this plays out? Um, how many of you have moved away from Ohio and thought, I'm going to go where it's not, it's not snowing when it should be 70 degrees out and sunny? I'm going to go where uh, all, a lot of other Ohioans are going. I'm going to North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida. I'm going to the Southwest. I'm going to California, anywhere but here where I have perennial cloud cover. Anybody ever done that? And maybe you're saying, I've done that, but I've, I'm here back again, and I don't really want anybody to know about that misadventure. There are some who go, and they just stay. But what I've discovered is there are a lot of people who go, and within about two years' time, they start thinking, it's nice weather, it's a nice environment, but I don't really feel connected to people like I would like to feel connected. And the only people that I know that I'm richly connected to, well, my family. So you find yourself coming back here, and you're saying, I don't know how I'm going to be gainfully employed, but one thing I do know, my family is of such high value that I'm going to do whatever I can to make it work so that I can be with them. And that's just an indication that God's wired that connectivity that we have with people that we love so much that everything else is secondary in nature. But when you're there with them and you move back and you think it's all going to be good and glorious if that's what you've done, or if you never have and you're thinking, I just got to reset this, how do I do it? And the, 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 the controlling verse here is, you know, don't just pretend to love, really love. But how do I love people? Well, you've heard it before, but I'll, I'll reset it. Real love is spelled T-I-M-E. I know that sounds a little cliche, but it's true. Um, now, I'm a little shocked right at this point in my life because I, I heard growing up that when we had computers and we had all the technology that, that they projected that we would have, that we would actually be living a life of leisure. And did you know there was an expert who testified before a Senate subcommittee in 1967, and what he told them was, in 1985, technology will be so rooted into our way of life that we will not have to spend so much time at work. And he projected that by 1985, our average work week would be about, about 22 hours a week. And he said, we'd really probably only find ourselves working about 28 weeks a year. And then he, he went on to say, at age 38, you can retire. Now, Something went way south on the way to the computer store because that dream never happened, did it? What happened? Why is it that we can't get any rest? Why is it that we can't retire at 38? Why is it that for some reason, as enabled as we are, as powerful as we are, to have all of the gadgetry and all the capabilities and, 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 and the connections that our time offers, why is it that we cannot spin down? And as you think about time, 
the technology prognosticator just set up expectations and then history just pulled the rug out from underneath them. And we're still reeling over that. But now we're just confused because no one has ever lived in a period of time where we have such access to so many people and so much information at, 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 at such a rapid rate that is instantaneous. And we've never done that before. And we're not even sure how that is supposed to play out in any godly sense of the word. Well, Jesus did offer something that I think is beneficial for anything, anywhere, at any time. And it is no matter what you do, you will know whether it's good or not by its fruit. If you have a relationship with technology and it's producing the kind of fruit you think is good for your overall personal and family picture, then by all means, leverage that for all it's worth. But if somehow technology is producing in you a lack of the ability to spend time with the people that you love, then you need to reevaluate that. Now, back a decade ago, everyone was talking about time management. Anybody have a Franklin planner? Remember those? There's <laughs> Jim. Of course you did, Jim. Uh, but uh, anybody besides Jim? Okay, you, you know, some sort of way of tracking in an analog form your days. I mean, just a simple calendar uh, that would suffice. And people constantly were talking about time management, weren't they, Jim? So Jim's, he's checked out already. Yeah, so never mind. Because, no, uh, we're going to address you right now with this next point. Because I, I love you, Jim, and I can assure you that real love is spelled attention. Right there it is. Uh, but they actually said that, um, I, I just set you up for that, didn't I? Um, so real love is actually, in this time, in this era, people aren't so concerned about time management as attention management. Um, how do you manage your attention? Because have you ever been in a conversation with someone and you're looking at them right in the face? The phone, the phone prompts you, you look at the phone, and then you're like, okay, uh-huh, yeah, what, yeah, okay, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening, I'm listening. Okay, and then, and then you're like, uh, they're not attending to me at all. Um, and I, I'm not picking on you, Jim. Okay, so. Um, but if you translate that into how you connect with people that you love, there is a dynamic in play that does tend to pull us away. And I think the only way that we can really honor them is to step back and get a balcony view of our lives and ask the question, now I know in my heart I value my family more than anything else in the world, but as I'm stepping back and I'm looking at my behavior the past week, how much time and attention bandwidth am I truly giving to them? And I think if you're honest, you would just sort of do a log of a week and you would say, all right, this is minutes dedicated to talking to my wife, minutes dedicated to talking to my, my son, because I only have one left, the other two left us, because they weren't getting enough time or attention. And um, so uh, we have one left, and I'm trying this time to make it happen. Um, but... How do I honor them? Well, however you spend, because it's a limited resource, 
however you spend your resource of time for the week and your resource of attention for the week, that will tell you exactly and painfully or perhaps proudfully what it is that you value the most. And maybe you can't sleep at night because you're not really valuing and honoring those that need to be honored the way they should. This one I've lost sleep over. Well, here's the second thing that I want to I just kind of drill down into. Now, he doesn't say be wise there, but it's, uh, it's, it's assumed. Um, and and what, uh, what Paul said in Ephesians, um, uh, let me find the reference real quick. Um, what Paul said in Ephesians, um, I thought I had it memorized, but I'm just having one of those times when I didn't get enough sleep last night, and I can't, can't remember. But um, in Ephesians, oh, there it is, 5.15, he says in 16, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And what Paul is saying that I think um, really uh, corresponds well and complements this passage is you got to be wise about how you conduct your life. And a wise person, as opposed to a fool, a fool, does, a fool will make the same mistake over and over and over, and that's why we call him a fool. But the reason he or she makes a mistake is because he or she does not take the time to stop and ask the question, why is it that every time I do that, I get the same result? And if I'm getting it and it's negative, then why do I keep repeating it? Maybe I should do something better. And a fool will just get caught in that loop. A wise person will step back and will evaluate what has been going on and it'll be like, okay, I'm looking at the balcony view of, of my life. And for example, I got up this morning, and the first thing that happened was I heard the cat clawing the floor. And I'm just giving you a little detail here. And I had very, not very Christian thoughts about the cat in that moment. And I have decided that I'll include the dog as a family member. The two cats, I'm not sure if they're included anymore. And as I'm thinking about that, I get up and I, I, I eat my breakfast after I take a shower and I get dressed and I take the dog out and then I do a couple of other things. I get in the car and I drive up uh, towards the church and as I'm going up the hill by Walmart, somebody spun out on black ice, probably going too fast because they didn't get a good night's rest and the police were there and cars were jammed up so I turned around and I came back to the church only to see that... Um, uh, uh, we, we've got a lot of snow and ice on the ground and, and, and we had to do some things. And, and just, just some details of it. And all I'm doing is trying to bore you with stuff that you wouldn't want to pay attention to anyway. But if you take a minute and you say, this is exactly what I did last week, and you attend to that, maybe you're saying, I'm spending an awful lot on stuff I shouldn't necessarily be spending on. And when Paul says, you know, take the, take the bad things that are at work, the evil things, and push them out so that they're not even in, in your line of sight anymore, and take the good things and embrace them, he's actually talking about the best things because I believe that the good things can also crowd out the best things. I mean, sure, it's good to come to work. It's good to, to do activities. It's good to do a lot of 
uh, things that build you up. But if you're doing those things at the expense of just leaving those that you love uh, and giving them leftovers, then maybe you need to say no to those good things so that you can say yes to the best things. And maybe you have to cull some stuff out. Maybe the good things um, are, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting down once a day and eating with my family and praying with them because I'm doing some good things like exercising or working out in the yard or attending a hobby or being a part of some group. But I can tell you, I don't know if you remember last, a few, few weeks ago, it's probably been a couple of months ago, um, we were talking about um, a similar thread here. And one of the statistics that I discovered in the research for the message was if you, if you spend at least one meal a day together, um, it just offsets greatly. Uh, the, the risk of divorce and, and, and so many other things that jeopardize vital relationships. And my wife and I realized that we'd kind of gotten out of the habit with all these other demands of sitting down once a day. It had been maybe two, three times a day tops. And then we just made the conscious effort to sit down, have a meal together, pray together at that meal, and allow that to be a time of connecting and we're richly blessed that we did. And it's a yes, it's, it's a great thing. Is it convenient? Not always. But is it the best thing? Yeah, it's great. Well, as you're going through that, and we're thinking about, in our case, our freshman, who is the sole survivor, and he is the beneficiary of his mother and father's complete and total attention. Can you imagine being a freshman boy, Having mom and dad, what's he doing all the time? For some reason, he's not that interested in having that much attention. And sometimes he'll text his brother and sister for some friendly advice or like call mom and dad right now because they're going places that I'm not, I don't want to go right now. And so, but you know, when you have a, uh, a kid that age or even younger, when, when, they're, when, when they're looking at activities that they, they want to do, they don't have the, the, the full picture of how all the pe- machinery fits together. And when they're especially young, they want to play basketball, they want to play baseball, they want to do soccer, you know, whatever it is you throw out in front of them, they're just all over it. And we came to a place where eventually we said, uh, no, <laughs> we have gone, we've burned through four minivans with you guys. And well over 100,000 miles on each of them, we're going to slow down. So you can do two things. And just each gave them two things. And that amazingly reduced all of the chaos that would be a good descriptor of our family. And sometimes if they say, I want to do this, and you have to override it and say, let's think this through a little bit. And... I'm just going to go a little bit farther in this because one, one of the things that keeps me up at night is are my kids going to make the best choices whenever they get older? What I didn't realize at the time after we had them that immediately following their entrance into the world, I, I would be responsible for a process called letting go. And it would be about 18 years long. 
And letting go involves enabling and equipping them along the way so that I can let them go. And then, of course, the final thing is locking the basement door with a key that they can't get in with and they can't come back from college and say, I'd like to live in your basement for a while. So I let go. I let go. You're on your way. Now, I know in theory that sounds good and you're thinking, that's cold and heartless. I don't know. So... One thing I do know is maybe I have to say no at that point, maybe not. But we'll let time determine that one. But the one thing that they have to understand in that letting go process is that life requires guardrails, just like there are guardrails going down the road. And you've heard this metaphor in your Bible studies and things like that. And guardrails are just another way of saying boundaries. You just don't drive your car beyond those boundaries or bad things happen. You, you'll receive drama that uh, you wish you hadn't. And, and so... As you're wise with kids, um, you, have to, um, you have to begin to uh, help them hate what's wrong and embrace what's good. Bless you. Um, and so, for a second, we read that word hate and we think, well, it's not good to hate anything or anyone. And I would say don't, don't ever hate people. As a Christian, you, you honestly can't because you have a role to try to influence them out of darkness and into light. But you have to name the forces that are destructive to your family. And they could be as, destru- they could be as simple as not praying together. Uh, just the sin of omission of not doing is destructive. But there are other forces that are more sinister and darker. And the only way you can really know them sometimes is by the fruit that they're creating. Is it good for a kid to be on the computer all the time? Just look at the fruit. Do they need some guardrails here? Perhaps. And so you establish them. Now, each kid's different. Now, because um, I know you're, I'm boring you with my kids, but I'll just say this. Uh, one of them is very, my son, oldest son is very social and outgoing. Um, and so he had a very active social life. So he'd want to be out on Saturday nights. And we'd say, look, um, he said, I'd like to go out. When, when do I have to come back in? And I'd say, well, we're certainly not going to ask you to come back in at 7 o'clock at night. However, 7.45 will suffice. <laughs> and, um, you know, that would create some conflict, but there would be a series of arbitration and resolution. And, you know, my daughter, she wanted to, to date this kid, and we were sort of skittish about that. We said, look, you can date anyone you want to within certain guardrails. Uh, anytime after you're 30, it'd be great. Um, and so, you know, you establish those guardrails and they define the outcome. The reason you do that is because there's some degree of wisdom in that, in their readiness, or as they begin to see what the guardrails mean and the boundary that you shouldn't cross, inevitably they'll ask Why? And then you start talking about something that my kids have heard me say a million times if you've heard it once. And it's just simply this. Because we don't have a lot of rules in our house. But what we, what we do ask of you is if you do anything, always understand the consequences. And when you go through the guardrails, 
there will be consequences. And a number of times when we've traveled, we've seen where guardrails have been busted through. And I remember on one occasion, uh, it was in the mountains, and it didn't look like there was much beyond the guardrails. And I remember thinking and asking the kids, where do you, where do you think the vehicle is right now? It's a dramatic metaphor that says, if you bust through the guardrails, you're going to create some drama that you may not wish you had. If you want that drama, by all means, just bust through the guardrails all you want. But I know my kids well enough to know that they're not big on drama, and they're not big on having consequences that are of their own doing, that are negative, and that are, are, are not fun. And, and so they make their own rules as they go. And I, I think in a lot of ways, God's wired that in. Uh, of course, as believers, I hope that they're factoring in that the choices that they make, that eventually make them, are godly choices and, and their spiritual development. I don't lose as much sleep at night anymore. My two kids weren't with me at Easter, and I was a little concerned about that. But they both said they, they, they went to churches on their own, which um, I'm like, I didn't arm twist you. I'm really glad to hear that the faith that you sort of were living under with us is now becoming yours. Um, but that's the goal. Letting go so that not only will they be sustainable in their own way, but more importantly, so that they will begin to process their relationship with God like you do. And that doesn't happen by accident. It happens through wisdom through experience, through painful things that we go through, that if they're wise, they'll hear and they'll learn from. If they're not so wise like me, well, I learn everything the hard way. But here's the final thing about this. As you establish guardrails and you show consequences, it's all in the context of a greater sense of love that you have for those people that mean the most to you. And you're really in the driver's seat on this. The church helps, comes alongside. We have great volunteers who've invested a lot of time in your kids who want to show them as an outsider's view of what it means to follow God. And, and I can say that with confidence that the people that we have volunteering here who are overseeing your kids truly love the Lord. But they only get your kids two thousand, I mean, 40 hours tops statistically a year. Guess how many hours you have? 3,000 hours to invest in their spiritual development. And whatever it is that is their takeaway from their life with you, 3,000 hours a year, that they're consciously aware and have that opportunity, that's, your, that's when you're on. That's when we're on. Here's the best thing to do, because I like how he says, don't pretend... But, but truly love. And that is finally, um, love each other with genuine affa- affection. There are just three ways that, um, that, that, that really count here. And the first one is with a look. Now, it's funny because I'll come home and I'll look at my wife and I can tell that if I look at her the wrong way, the conversation doesn't always get off to a good start. But if I look at her and I look in her eyes and I look at her with a, with a look of love and there's a gleam and I, you're like, oh, 
please, please don't bring that up. Um, uh, but it's the same with my kids. If I look at them and I'm, I'm vacant and I'm not really there, then that's how they're going to respond. But if I look at them and I say, I'm, I'm, I'm locked into you right now. You're the only thing or person that matters. And they'll, that just speaks volumes to them. But it isn't just a look. It is also the words. Now, when you say a word to somebody, it is so powerful. And your word could be, it could be critical, which is easy to do after, you know, dealing with stuff at work that's got you all stressed out. And then all of a sudden, your family member doesn't become an object of, of, of love and genuine affection, but a lightning rod for all the stuff that you're carrying around in your soul because of a difficult day. And when you look at your spouse or your child, how often do you say to them, you know, what a great job. You showed some initiative there and something that they're proud of that maybe they don't think you noticed. And you say, yeah, I, I was aware. I spell love attention. I get it. And as I saw you do that, I, I want you to know um, that's a really good thing. And just taking the time to be intentional about being aware of things that are important to them, whether it's my wife, whether it's my son who's at home, who's stuck in the crosshairs. Um, that's how I want to I love them. But here's the last one, with the touch. Now, you know, there's nothing like, and I, I don't know, is Stephen in here? I don't know where Stephen is. Okay, good. He's serving. Stephen still gives hugs. He's a freshman. I don't know if he got the memo or not, but don't tell him if, if, he, if he didn't. Because there's nothing like getting a hug from your kid. There's nothing like getting a hug from your wife. And when you're getting a hug from your wife with your kid in front of you, um, you're teaching them about love in a different way. This person over here, third row down on the end, it's my wife. Her face is really red right now. Is mine? T- okay. So anyhow... It's important. This person right here, she hugs all that you are a hugging machine. I know that when I come to church, if I feel, if I'm feeling like, oh man, I just feel the weight of the world right now, I'll see Susan. She'll give me a hug, and it's like I'm re-energized. Now I'm ready to go to work. Isn't that cool? How powerful that is. Um, and that's what Paul is talking about, and he's saying. It is basic stuff, but unless you write it down on the chalkboard in front of you, you're going to be prompted by other things that will define how you spend your time and attention. But if you want to honestly get a good night's rest, because thinking about your family has just about pushed you over the edge because you don't feel like you're doing it right. And look, none of us are doing it right or perfectly. That's where we need to accept God's grace. But if you're knowing that you're trying and you're doing the best that you can, 
And God says, relax. I'm going to help you where you lack. Because that's what grace is. Grace is that ability to connect things that in their own right can't quite make that, 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 that touch. And grace is what Jesus is all about. His presence in your life and in your family is what allows us to be able to make up or relax, whether it's our relationship with the Father or our relationship with those that are in front of us. Grace is the means by which God gets it done through us and for us. But none of this stuff can really be activated in your life unless the one who is filled with grace and truth is also a rich part of your life. And I'm talking about Jesus. And I wonder, is Jesus at the center of your life? Is he at the center of your family? Is he the go-to person when you're thinking about all this stuff that keeps you up at night? Because my guess is, if you're staying up at night and you're not including him in the, in the equation, you're going to have a lot of sleepless nights. Maybe just begins with settling some things with him.